Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is How Have You Not Seen, a movie podcast where we fill in the gaps in each other's cinematic knowledge by asking important questions like, you seriously have never seen Casino Royale? Or, you've never watched Training Day? Or, oh, you haven't seen Dr. Zhivago? again and thank you for joining us uh for how have you not seen i'm your co-host caroline thompson i am the other co-host carson betts and this is a movie podcast where each week we pick one of our favorite movies that the other hasn't seen we talk about it then we go and watch the movie and we talk about it some more it's going to be a very good time oh yes um especially too because this week uh we have a guest joining us um, I guess who, if you follow this podcast, um, you have probably seen, um, like on Twitter, uh, and you've probably seen her work, um, on Vox.com, um, co-creator or co-creator of Arden. Oh, co-creator. Co-creator of, um, Arden podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. we have Emily St. James with us, everyone. Hi everyone. It's so <laughs> nice to be here. I am going to bother my wife to make me coffee because my brain is still not quite working. Um, she's going to love that, but yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, and so, I mean, we're doing things just a little bit differently this week because scheduling is very hard and mm -hmm. uh, we have a hard enough time coordinating the three of our schedules. So uh, coordinating with the guests is, is difficult. So We've already watched um, this film, so we are just going to kind of do one long, uh, long form episode today. But let's just get it kicked off with Emily. How had you not seen Doctor Zhivago? Um, you know, I I was concerned that maybe I had. Here's the thing: I'm old. I'm an old lady. I don't yeah. remember most of the things I've seen. Like I've seen Training Day, but if you had just made me watch Training Day outside of like the clips that have been endlessly replayed. Dr. Zhivago shouting, or <laughs> Dr. Zhivago. Dr. Zhivago <laughs> sounding up King Kong. <laughs> of Denzel Washington, Denzel mm -hmm. Washington shouting, um, you know, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. Like, yeah. like I, you know, um, I would not, uh, I would not remember most of it. Oh, Ethan Hawke's good in it. I remember that. Yes. So I was concerned that like I had seen Dr. Zhivago as a tiny, tiny child because David Lean was kind of a big deal, you mm -hmm. know, in my household growing up. Um, I've seen most of his movies, but like I read a plot summary of it a few months ago and was like, I don't remember anything about this. And I yeah. think that was right around when we were talking. Um, and uh, then I like watched some clips on YouTube and had not seen them. I had in my head what it looked like because it's it's a culturally ubiquitous movie that mm -hmm. like, um, you know, uh, is one of the top 10 grossing films of all time when adjusted for inflation. Yes, so like I saw people. That. People talk about have talked about this movie like it is a cultural landmark in a way that like you can't avoid it entirely. But yeah, yeah I had I had no idea what it was about beyond a doctor named Zhivago. So I read the plot summary and I was like, oh, okay. I I've I don't think I've ever seen that. Um, so you fortunately messaged me right around then, and I was like, it's it, it's I've seen a lot of stuff. It's gonna be hard to find something I haven't seen. And then I thought of this is a cultural landmark that I 
as I watched it, I clearly had not seen, or if I had, I'd scrubbed it from my memory. I spent a lot of my childhood dissociating. So always a possibility, but I'm just going to assume that this I've never seen until I watched it a couple of weeks ago. So um, it's weird because I should have seen it. I should like, I saw Lawrence. I saw Bridge mm-hmm. over the River Kwai. I saw Great Expectations. I saw all these big David Lean classics. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. I've seen Ryan's fucking daughter, for God's sake. Like, I don't know how I missed Dr. Zhivago, but I did. And I yeah. finally watched it a couple of weeks ago and um, had had a blast. So wonderful. Well, um, yeah, so I that was such like a such a good choice, too, because that was one that just like, you know, um, like you said, it is kind of one of those like culturally ubiquitous kind of like landmark things that just like I feel like this is one of those films that's kind of not been on our list in the past because it was kind of that thing of like, well, anybody who's coming on a movie podcast, like even if it was just like 10 years ago in film school, like anybody who's been on a who's like guesting on a movie podcast has probably seen this. So like, we're not even going to go. So when you're like, I haven't seen Dr. Shivago. And I was yeah. just like, I was like, Perfect. that is a really, really good choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also like to, when I go on a podcast, make sure everyone has to watch like a three and a half. Hour thing. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, I mean, we are, we are no stranger. We are no stranger to those here. So, um, Hey, if you skip, if you skip through the intermission and the overture, <laughs> it's like three twenty. it's like not <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With credits, it's really mm-hmm. only doubt. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Emily, you had mentioned, um, obviously, you knew the titular Dr. Zhivago. Mm-hmm. Um, before before watching the film, like, any was there anything else you knew going in? Or was it really just you read that plot summary and you knew that um, it was I knew I, I knew snow, you know. Um, so much snow. I knew that. I knew, I knew Laura's theme because that's mm-hmm. one of those songs that you can't escape. Um, you know, even if you don't know it's called that, when you hear it, you're like, oh, this is from that. You know, it's it's like how Looney Tunes is all classical music on the score. Um, right. And like uh, I knew it had something to do with the Russian Revolution. And I also knew that at the time it was criticized for being insufficiently anti-communist. And now people are kind of like, is this too anti-communist? So like, it's just like, <laughs> it's this weird balancing act of like, um, I, I did some research into uh, Boris Boris Pasternak. I'm going to pronounce it badly because I always pronounce Russian badly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he who wrote the novel and he thought he was just like telling it like it was. And like the communists were like, hey, you're being way too anti-communist. And yeah. then like ever and then like a lot of other people. So they banned it. And so like mm-hmm. a lot of other people were like, yeah, what a hero. And then this movie gets made and people are like, but this is just a love story. Where's all the mm-hmm. stuff about how communism is bad? Right. No, I mean, and I, I love that you started there because that has been the, that's where my brain has been swirling. I I too have been thinking about the last like 40 hours, like just like, okay, we're, we're, we're recording the Zhivago episode on Saturday. Like, what's my take on it? Like, where do I, like, where do we kind of like hop in? And that's just been the thing that I've been kicking around in my brain is just like, look, Anytime there is anything American mm-hmm. about the Soviets, I'm just like, I'm just like, I feel like I can't even venture a guess as to like, is this accurate? Is this okay? Is this like, because it is that thing of like, you know, uh, 
Pasternak, if like I did some research as well, and it was like, you know, he was he was relatively like I I don't know if revered is the right word, but like he was yeah. relatively successful for a while. But like the last few years of his life, especially after this book goes out, like he was like horribly hounded by like the Soviet government mm-hmm. and just like tortured him for his last few years. Not like literally like mm-hmm. in a gulag yeah. somewhere, but like, you know, just like they hounded him for the rest of his life. And his last few years were allegedly very like made miserable. And like you said, Emily, like according to him, this was kind of just like a mostly, mostly autobiographical yeah. recounting. So it is just that thing of like, I'm just like, look, is it like, this thing is clearly like, at least to my mind, I was like, this is like pretty anti-communist, but also like, but also I'm just like, it isn't that thing of, you know, it isn't very clearly a, well, and then David Lean and Omar Sharif were like, let's really stick it to those reds. Yeah. Huh? Mm-hmm. Like, so I've been thinking about that all, there, all, all day. There is the first hour of this movie is arguably pro-communist. The first yeah. hour of this yes. movie is like, the czar fucking sucks. We yeah. hate the czar. <laughs> he beats up innocent kids. He beats up, you know, um, just lovely Tom Courtney. Uh, and so like, yeah, we got to get rid of him. Now it's going to be communism. And even in the sections where you're like, okay, this is maybe not so great. It's very understandable as like, oh, we've just totally changed systems of government. There's going to be, it's, there's going to be a few hiccups along the way. We just have to get through those, but like, yeah, it doesn't really become, and I wouldn't even say it's anti-communist. It's literally just like, maybe the government should let you chill with the lady you're in love with. Like that is ultimately Mm -hmm. the message of this movie, which is applicable to every I mean, we live in a country where the government has routinely made mm-hmm. people stop chilling with the lady they love. You know, like like that happens in every country on the planet. So, yeah. like through one, so I'm if I'm watching this through a rapidly anti-communist 1960s film lens, I can see why a lot of those critics were like, "Where's all the where's all the people being mean to communism?" But as I watch it through a modern lens, where like the 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 failures of our current system have become a lot more apparent. People are searching for alternatives. I'm like, yeah, but you know, um, capitalism is also bad, but like, this isn't a movie about that. This is a movie about how the government should let you kiss the people you like. It's like Zhivago says right at the beginning of the movie, he's like, when he's talking to Pasha for the first time, Tom Courtney, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, I think I agree with you on some stuff, but also that's kind of not what I'm thinking about right now. And that's the rest Mm -hmm. of the movie, you know? Yeah, and that's so much of so much of like um, government uh, political idealists. The mm. thing they have to grapple with is that so many people just aren't thinking about that right now. Yeah. They're just like, I, I have to go to work. I'm mm-hmm. in love with somebody, and they don't know I exist. Blah 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 blah. You know? Yeah. No, yeah. definitely. Well, and it's like I mean that I, I I think that's a really really good point, and it was something that I was kind of grappling with as well. Is I'm like, this feels it feels a little more pointedly like quote unquote, like about the Soviets than just like mm-hmm. your general, like, well, war is hell movie, mm-hmm. you know? But at the same time, like you said, that first hour is like very anti the czar. Um, but then, you know, you get into, uh, you get into that back half. And like the moment that just sticks out in my brain is like when the little girls, mm-hmm. just, this is the czar, he's an enemy <laughs> of the people. And then Omar Sharif is just like, well, he didn't know he was an enemy of the people. And she was like, well, he should have. And I was just like, yes, little girl. I was like, yes, you're right. Like, I think, I think what I like about that scene is it lets you take either of their points yeah. of view. 
Like yeah. it is, Definitely. it is. This movie, I don't want to say, I don't think any movie is apolitical, you know, yeah, but no, this correct. movie yeah. tries to be apolitical. And I think people were threatened by that. Like um, a, a movie that gets thrown into contrast with a lot is Warren Beatty's Reds, which I love. And Reds is forthrightly like, you know what? The early communists had some great ideas and yeah. we should listen to what they were saying. Um, and uh, the... I love that film and I love a lot of things that it does, but it is very much trying to propagandize a point of view. David Lean thinks he's not, he, he kind of is in several places, but that's why this movies are, this movie's politics are harder to pin down than I think people want it to be and why it is continually criticized for not having enough politics. But I don't think it wants to be a political drama. I think it wants to be a love story and like that's uh you know, and ultimately its message is sort of um, the Casablanca line about uh, two people's problems don't mean a hill of beans in the face of like global yeah. worldwide change. And yet um, the argument of Dr. Zhivago in novel and film form is that they should, is that people's individual problems always matter regardless of the system of government they're living under. And I think like, I think we can all agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. And I mean, I think, I mean, I... Yes, um, that sort of like David Lean thinks he's doing mm-hmm. it um, kind of apolitically, I think is it's a very good is a very good way to pin that down because I mean, I honestly was even impressed in like the opening minutes where it's like um, Alec Guinness who's going to um, mm-hmm. to talk to the girl in the first time. It's like they're showing the shift change and it's got the big red star and all of the people are coming out of the tunnel. And it is not nearly like, you know, that scene could have easily been the shift change of Metropolis. You mm-hmm. know, that scene could have very easily been yeah. be like, oh, look at these poor, horribly downtrodden workers who like are so miserable. And you can tell because they can't even like hold their heads up high as they're coming out. But it's like, nope, there's the big red star that's very clearly like, this is Soviet Russia. And like mm-hmm. the people are just kind of walking out, chatting, like ending their day at work as the next people are coming in. And um, even that, like from there, um, it is that thing of like, even from those opening moments, there is that feeling of like, okay, so we're not like, we're not hyperbolically using every choice in yeah. this film to, to make a point about it. And yeah. And that like those, that early scene and the, the bookend sequences are one of them. They're a big expansion of a thing in the novel. I haven't read the novel. I've read a lot about the novel to prepare for this podcast. It sounds like a lot of work to read that novel. So I'm, I haven't read it and I probably won't, but like, um, I, uh, I do think that that was included in a certain way to be like, listen, yeah. Uh, when Stalin took over, there was the great purge and that's terrible. And also the switchover was chaotic and there were a lot of problems and there was a lot of chaos and but now things are kind of boring now they just you know everybody goes to work it's just a normal country where people are just trying to do normal things like find the child of their dead brother you know that's the thing we've all had to do we all had to do two of those last week yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) well and and that's the thing too is i was watching it and i was like i because i knew that this was the um the david lean alec guinness uh alec guinness team up after lawrence of arabia i'm like i'm like 
is that are these scenes just an excuse to get like um to get Alec Guinness in there because he's a little too old but then nope he's he's hanging out in I love seeing him in the um in the earlier scenes where he's young and he has <laughs> <laughs> the swooshed over hair yeah and that I cool love, ass jacket I love that David Lean and Alec Guinness I think they work together on every film Lean made from Bridge on, Bridge on the Required. River Flight on mm. and like they fucking hated each other really like they just yeah apparently like every movie they would get so upset with each other and like then that then david lean would be like well i can only cast this part with alec guinness and you watch this movie and you're like you probably could have found somebody else to do this part you did well, this because like alec, alec guinness was david lean's john ratzenberger and that's that's that that's all it is yeah uh they and you know uh maybe maybe that was a bit of a, a failed a, a romance doomed to fail between david yeah. lean and guinness as well it- <laughs> It, it kind of feels like that adds some texture to it because I, I thought I'm like, it's an odd choice that like he starts, he's like, all right, let me tell you the story of your father. And then, you know, there's no involvement from those bookend scenes until then Alec Guinness walks back on and then his narration comes back and it mm-hmm. gives it this like- Yeah, like 90 minutes in. Yeah. Like, oh, what? wait, this is a free Oh yeah, I, should, I forgot. Alec Guinness is in this. But like, it gives it a really weird, by the end, the joke I thought it was like, it's basically him being like, so I was around for some of it. The rest I basically guessed at. I'm just like, I'm pretty sure it happened this way, but nah, you know, not going to yeah. give my narration to it. And I do think that that is a, a strength of casting him is you remember mm. Alec Guinness. He's a big yeah. enough star that like when he disappears for 90 minutes, you're like, oh, right, Alec Guinness. Mm. I remember him. He's playing the guy. I guess the equivalent of it now would be like, you know, you if you cast Channing Tatum or something where he's like you know a big enough star that you're going to remember him but like it's not going to be such a big star that throws you when he's not in the movie for a while um somebody should make a movie like this (laughs) Channing Tatum (laughs) Channing Tatum would make a great secret policeman I think this is what dog should have been oh my Or uh, Free Guy, either way. Oh, is, Channing T- is Channing Tatum in Free Guy? Yes, he is. Oh, best God. part, best. Well, Jody Comer is the best part of that movie, and then Channing Tatum showing up twice. It was like the first movie he'd made in five years. A he long just time, like does yeah. a tiny cameo in Free mm-hmm. Guy. He should have done a, a bookend where he was searching for Free Guy. <laughs> for Jody like, Comer's you, daughter. Yeah. Are Are you the daughter of a video game character and a real woman? <laughs> And like he's talking to like a Goomba from Mario. <laughs> hold on, hold on. But the Goomba is an artist. This is a podcast about Dr. Zhivago, but I have to ask: Is in Free Guy is Jody Comer a real person who falls in love with a, the yes. Ryan Reynolds video game character? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what that movie's about. Wow, Academy yeah. Award nominated film Free Guy. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you Zhivago. should you should watch it. It's so weird. Like it's, it's really not, I'm, I'm not recommending it to you in the sense that I thought it was good because I thought it was kind of gross and awful. Mm-hmm. I was, I was glad it made a lot of money because it was an original, an original idea. Yeah. I'm putting <laughs> so many air quotes around that, but like, um, but it's so, there's so many just weird bullshit things that happen in, and it just feels like something our collective subconscious, a hairball, it coughed up. It's worth watching for that reason alone. It's not a good movie, though. You're not no. going to sit there and be like, yeah, great movie. No, you're going to sit there and be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. So. Oh, well, wonderful. Well, wonderful. Well, back to Dr. Zhivago. Um, 
Here's the thing. What a segue. Yeah. <laughs> here's here's the thing. It needs must be remarked. Um, mm. Omar Sharif, um, very very handsome man. I very I've, handsome man. I have been walking around my apartment the past few days, just kind of singing to myself. <laughs> She's got Omar Shari eyes. <laughs> oh yeah, I like I I watched this um, with some friends of mine, and mm. I just the the main selling thing was like, okay, Omar Sharif and Julie Christie at yeah. their hottest, mm. like just one of the gorgeous screen couples of all time. And you know, you think about why this movie is one of the top ten grossing films of all time, and it's literally you put those two on your poster, and you're like, yeah, I want to see them kiss. That yeah. sounds good. 100%. And then they take so long to kiss. Oh, so long. <laughs> they go the scene where they kiss, they hug first, and I went no, and then they kiss, and I went yes, like yeah. you know, <laughs> no, absolutely. And I mean, like, I I think that that does a lot, and I mean, like. Omar just has the, he has the, I can give a look that says way more than any, than any, um, any writing could possibly convey throughout mm -hmm. this film. Like just every time, doesn't matter who it is, every time anybody comes up to him and it's like, doctor, we need you. And he just gives that, like, just gives that like heartbroken stare. You're just like, great. Like I am there. I am there. Do it. Yeah. 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 I think um, the, uh, if in case you were tracking on this narrative, dear listener, I got my coffee from my wife. Oh. So that is that is happening now, and I'm drinking it and I'm sipping it, and um, that that was a that was a narrative thread that we set up that I had to resolve. So set up. It was Chekhov's coffee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Boo>. <laughs> no, I loved it. That was a, that was an A plus joke. Can can we can can we briefly? Because Emily, you mentioned it before. There's so much snow in this movie. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, I love fake movie snow. It's something that I discovered. I was rewatching The Ice Storm like a couple of weeks ago because I got the criterion of it. And that movie's like very famous for, oh yeah, all the snow is fake. It was like very hot when they shot it or whatever. But like watching this movie, there were scenes where I'm like, that is clearly just a real field with real snow. Looks pretty cool. And then sometimes it'd be like, okay, they just like painted white paint on stuff and put, you know, whatever fake cement and filler. And I'm like, that looks better. I'm into this. Like the, the, the artificiality of it is so cool in the production of this yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those movies where I went deep on this movie. I did. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think when we get to the point where we talk about like, you know, compared to other lean films, I think it's, it's a step behind his best movies. I think there's stuff in this movie that doesn't quite work, yeah. but um, uh, when you look at, you know, uh, how they filmed it. They went to a place where they were supposed to have a lot of snow. And then it was like a world shattering warm winter in, you know, 1963, 64, whenever they were, they were filming this. Yeah. So like they didn't have a lot of snow and uh, they had to like invent snow. And they like apparently came up with like techniques for making fake snow that we still utilize today. Incredible. And like, there's, there's all these, uh, uh, and yeah, it looks good. Every time you see it, you're like, oh yeah, this looks like snow, even if it's clearly fake. Yeah. There's something, that shot where um, uh, they open the door to the train and it's iced over and they yeah. break open the ice. I was one of those shots where I was like, I could probably sit here and figure out how they did that. It doesn't seem that difficult, but it looks so real. Mm -hmm. that I also was just like, I don't, how did they do this? This is, yeah. you know, this is the kind of like, there's an element of David Lean's filmmaking that's very tactile, that is yes. always very much like invested in 
And I think I think about this often in terms of um, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, which I think come the closest to doing kind of the lean thing, yeah. but coming at it from another angle. And so much of what makes those movies work as well is that they have the huge scope and then they come down to the more human level of, you know, like Aragorn and Legolas locking eyes across the battlefield and kissing. And then they come down to just the level of like individual body parts manipulating the universe. Like now we're lighting a torch. Now we're, you know, mm-hmm. hauling things in. And that's so tactile that when you go up to the scope where they had to fake it, they had to do, you know, CGI orcs or whatever, you still like just completely plausibly buy that it's happening right now yeah and like um you know those movies uh visual effects have aged much better than most other um computer effects from that period and i think it's because he includes that level of we built all these props and we're going to show you hands using yeah. those props and i thought of that again when i saw the the, the breaking of the ice in, in dr Zhivago, that that tactility 110 yeah. percent. and um emily you're so speaking my language with the lord of the rings um <laughs> talk um and it, and it is that thing too where it's like a thing that i've always said that i think this movie does incredibly well um that like i mean you know we talk all the time on this podcast old woman shakes fists at cloud like damn cgi ruining <laughs> ruining my movies but um it is that thing of like one of the things like when i think about this movie number one thing that jumps into my head other than Omar's dreamy dreamy eyes is just like the cinematography just period like the way this film is shot is just like it is the number one element to me that like just stands out in my brain because almost every image in the film is striking in some way or another but it is that thing that like I always think about with Lord of the Rings where like the shot that I always think about which is not even like a huge a huge part of the movie but it's just the shot where in Two Towers, when uh, our our triumvirate is going through um, Rohan and they get you know cornered by the Rohirrim, there's just a reverse shot of Aragorn when he's talking to Aemir, and it's just like literally as far as your eye can see, there mm-hmm. is real field, there is real mountain, just as like it you you follow it to the vanishing point on the horizon, and yeah. there is scenery there in a way that just doesn't quite work unless you like unless you actually go out there and do it which is that tactility yeah. you're talking about and when you talk about the snow in this movie the two shots that just like i i think it's exactly your point um it's on that micro 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 level um and then on that huge scale as well and the contrast between the two of them allows you to just fill in so much with your own mind mm-hmm. but the two shots of snow in this movie that stick out to me is when he is walking just down the train tracks by himself and his entire mustache is just nothing but ice his entire beard is nothing but ice and it's that thing of like i watch that and i'm like somehow this man is colder than the final shot of the shining of jack nicholson and that is a shot about how a man froze to death yeah and somehow omar sharif is more cold in this than jack nicholson is in that scene and the other shot too is like the wide shot of of the manor house that is just covered in snow and it has like you can see it's so covered that parts of it have melted and refroze like and frozen again to itself mm-hmm. and it's just like it is a level of detail and a level of design that like you just don't see very much 
I had heard for so long about the ice palace sequence, mm-hmm. which is this manor house that's been so subsumed with snow that like the inside is frozen and there's ice coating everything. And I just like kept waiting for it. And then they got to the house, you know, and they're like, oh, we can't go in this house because it's, you know, the, the, Made that's, of ice. Uh, it's you no know, like the, it's it's, oh, it's in the, the summer yeah. mm-hmm. and he's with his wife uh there's a lot of plot in this movie and like you know they go and it's like well that you've been the government has forbidden anyone from using this house so we'll go and use the cottage instead and mm-hmm. you're just like no just go in the house i know you do and i know it's famous but by the time they finally do with like a half hour to go it's yeah. so gorgeous and it's yeah. so worth staying for and it is literally like the epic romance equivalent of like the final battle with Thanos or something. It's, yes. just, yeah. it's just like, oh, they went in the house and that's where they're going to kiss. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, I don't know. I do think, I mean, Emily, that's such a good, that's so, the, the Lord of the Rings thing is such a good analogy because it just is that thing of like, just the way you can design some of those practical effects allows you to unlock so much more about the rest of the film. And it's like, I do think so much of why this film works is because of that, like, I mean, you know, you have a few crowd scenes, you know, you have the scene when they're at the, when they're in the trenches and they overtake like the commanding officers. Mm. And then you have the crown scene, the, the crowd scene in the beginning with the czars, people, but really, this is a film in which, you know, frequently, at least for the plotty bits, there's maybe four people on screen at a time, mm-hmm. but they shoot it, they do shoot it in a way that is so epic, like with that, like that capital R romantic, like, um, you know, camera work that it does just feel so, so incredibly huge and overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, it must need to be remarked. I think the sound design also does a lot of work in getting you into that tactile mm-hmm. environment. Like watching it a few days ago, the scene right at the beginning, they're burying Yuri's mother and the sound of the sound of the dirt and the rocks hitting the casket. And I was yeah. just like, oh, I'm like, and it's, and it's a horribly sad scene, but there was something about it kind of like in an ASMR sort of way where I was like, there is something very, you know, something pulling me into this film about that very pleasurable about just like the that Foley work is really getting me. And I mean, and on top of, you know, Emily mentioned before, but like Lara's song is such a bop and so iconic. And just Mm -hmm. as soon as you hear it in the film, you're basically every time, you're just like, when are they going to play it again? When are they going to play it again? And then they do at the most, you know, dramatically intense moments often. And yes, the sound is also, I think, very important. I find um, um, David Lean, of course, became the guy who made movies at this scale. Like that Mm -hmm. became his whole thing. Yeah. And I, um, I have always like uh, been, you know, he before Bridge on the River Kwai, he made a bunch of movies that were more intimate, more human scale. He made a bunch of novel adaptations. And what I realized watching this movie is this is just his attempt, his first attempt to synthesize all three of those approaches. Mm-hmm. It's a novel adaptation about just an intimate relationship that is shot at the scale of Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And the scale of and Lawrence of Arabia needs its scale because it's about one guy changing the world. Yeah. You know, you know, whatever you think of its portrayal of T.E. Lawrence, that is the argument it's making. This movie needs its scale because it's about the fact that people can't change the world. It's about like when you want to just get away from everything and have a space to just be by yourself, the world and politics 
and everything is going to come intruding on you. And that doesn't matter regardless of who's in power. And I think mm-hmm. that's such an interesting flip side of Lawrence of Arabia. And it's why these two movies really earned their scale in a way that Ryan's daughter just did not. Um, and, and like, you know, uh, I think that it's fascinating to watch this movie and see how big it is, but also how small it is. And I do think that's that's a big reason for why it works. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And and it is, um, I had a moment watching this because um, I had never, I had never looked into um, who actually shot it before, but this past time I was watching it because like, obviously, you know, you have David Lee, you have, um, <laughs> you have uh, Alec Guinness. And like, I just, I was like watching it and I'm like, I'm like, yes, obviously this is a David Lean film. So it's going to be similar to Lawrence of Arabia, but I'm like, it has to be the same cinematographer. And like, that has to be like kind of almost on purpose. And like, sure enough, it is, um, it is the same cinematographer returning. And it is that thing. Like, I do think that is a very pointed, you know, almost choice that it's like, you know, we, they are going to shoot this film that is really just kind of about the romance, like and a romance doomed to fail through like this political, like, you know, through this political turmoil. And I, I just, I'm like, it has to be like almost a conscious decision to like, no, let's shoot this just like Lawrence of Arabia. Not just, but like, you understand. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he, uh, that guy, Freddie Young also shot um, Ryan's daughter. Um, uh, then he didn't do Passage to India, um, David Lean's final film, but uh, I and was... he was not River Kwai, right? He did not do No, River he Kwai? didn't do River Kwai. He only <laughs> did those three movies with uh, with David Lean, at least as I can see, as I'm just quickly scanning. But, like, he uh, is this sort of legendary cinematography figure, as you'd expect, uh, yeah. legendary at, at shooting um, outdoor landscapes. And yet, then you think about a lot of the outdoor landscapes in this were faked, but he makes them look so completely real. And, like, yeah. I, I, yeah. That's um that's impressive. One thing I one thing I discovered by reading the Wikipedia page for this movie, I haven't actually made sure this is true, but I, I did do a fair amount of reading and it, it sounds like it was true, is that uh, Lean hired Nicholas Rogue, the um great director, to be the cinematographer. And then Rogue's like just approach was so anathema to Lean that he was like, No, I'm gonna hire Freddie Young again. And so Freddie Young comes in and I think that was his second Oscar he won for this film. So um yeah. <clears throat> Uh, very deserved a very deserved oscar in my opinion Mm -hmm. and no and and the thing for me the thing that finally sealed it when i'm like i have to look this up this has to be the same guy is they do the um is the one shot um where the camera is pulling into the window and the candle is in the window Mm-hmm. And like in the same spot almost as the matchstick from Lawrence mm-hmm. is the candle and it pulls up and then his face is right there. And then it like the focus kind of changes as it gets closer. And then it like reveals her in the background. I'm like, I'm like, this has to almost be on purpose. If it's not on purpose, it just, it, it at least has to be the same guy whose brain oh. goes like, yeah. oh, like, like we're going to shoot a scene like this. Okay. What if I did like this? Cause I'm like, I'm like, it's just so like that mirroring is so apparent it has to be the yeah. same guy and like sure enough it was or the the shot where the snow or the ice slowly melts as you're looking in the window and <laughs> the, like who thinks like that and like a lot of the, a lot of the sections 
set in like cityscapes or set in like houses. It's pretty clear that David Lean was just like, yeah, I built this whole fucking set. I'm going to yeah. show it off. Like there's, there's a, there's a shot that just tracks the action in a house from outside by moving among the different windows. And it's literally just him showing off, but I love yeah. it. Like I miss that kind of showing off. There was a thing in the mid sixties where people were kind of like, and the the people who criticized this film at the time were like, okay, David Lean, yes, you yeah, can make calm down. a very, you, you can make a very big movie and you've done it before and you did it again. Good for you. Yeah. And I just, if somebody made a movie like this now, even if they were, probably almost certainly using cgi to do some of the crowd scenes you know that, that's how it would be made now but like yeah. if somebody if the the person who conceivably could and kind of has made a movie like this is 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 probably paul thomas anderson um there will be blood lifts a lot from this oh yeah but like just the moving the camera the 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 use of clever like lighting sources the use of dark and light like people aren't making movies like this anymore they just literally aren't and i i miss it so much and also of course the thing is it's prohibitively expensive but sometimes you make one of the 10 most successful films of all time so right well and um emily first off i have to say um you've just earned bonus points for unprompt for <laughs> unprompted uh dropping both mine and carson's favorite yeah. films ever made yeah um so bonus points for you um <laughs> But also, yes, I think that like if you kind of look into this movie, you do see um, it was kind of, uh, you know, a little bit criticized at the time, like you were talking about. And a lot of folks kind of kind of some of the flack it got was that thing of just like, you know, it's so much. It's so like romantic. It's just like like the romance is good, but like it's just kind of a lot. And then like as the years went on and people kind of like continued to reevaluate it, they're like, oh, shit, that thing was actually pretty good. But it's this thing that like I see a lot now on Twitter, kind of like what you're talking about is like there is so much like reclamation of every movie from like the 90s and 2000s. It's just like like any every 90s and 2000s blockbuster that came out and was like kind of bad. So many people are like kind of like revising, like reviving the, you know, the the reputation of those movies because like like you said, it's just like, they just don't make things like this anymore. And oh. people are like, yeah, we thought it was awful at the time because like, I mean, it objectively was, but now that we look back <laughs> and like, there's all these practical effects and like all of these people are like putting in a lot of effort in a way that just like a lot of things are just kind of getting phoned in in those departments now. I, the, the example of this I increasingly use is at the time it was released, Jurassic Park was seen as like a minor Spielberg. People were like, yeah. this is pretty good. This is fun. It's got some good dinosaurs. The characters are not very deep and they spend a lot of time with the characters. I missed the guys on the boat in Jaws. I missed, you know, Richard Dreyfus sculpting the mashed potato thing at in Close Encounters. I missed the family in E.T. And you look at Spielberg's 70s and 80s movies. The characters are more richly drawn than in Jurassic Park, where it's like, mm, Laura Dern likes kids and Sam Neill doesn't. But <laughs> what are we going to do about that? Right. Jeff but Goldblum's now, cool. Yeah, but now... Yeah you know, you look at Jurassic Park and it's just like, it has become a classic. A lot of people listed as Spielberg's best, which is not a, not a bridge I can cross, but like it is because it just is such, it's kind of the pinnacle of practical effects work in a lot of ways. And obviously there's CGI in that film as well, but like, it's also weirdly still very high up in list of good CGI. Like it doesn't look like anything being made right now. You watch Jurassic yeah. Park and you're like, oh, this is just a guy who knows how to make a movie. And that feels so 
welcome. And because it's the start of kind of this era we're in, people keep returning to it. And people mm-hmm. are just like, you hold that up to um, even the, the, the superhero movies from right now that I like the most. And you're just mm-hmm. like, come on. Um, the weirdly, like a guy I feel that way about is Matt Reeves. Um, I thought um, um, his apes movies were really you know his last apes movie um i can never remember which is which i think war. it's war war yeah yeah and like that is shot like a biblical epic in a yeah. lot of ways um and uh which is which is next door to david lean it's not quite david lean <laughs> but and so so like he is definitely invested in that yeah. um and uh yeah i want to see i want to see him make a david lean style movie but it would have to be about batman so yeah <laughs> <laughs> look i mean I, I I I very much with you, Emily. I talk about the Matt Reeves Apes movies all the time, and I feel like they are so underwatched, which is weird because that really is War for the Planet of the Apes is the movie that he makes that then he, they're like, okay, you can have Batman. Yeah, do whatever you want. It's cool. But I will always tell people, I go, hey, you know that like five years ago they made Ten Commandments, but with monkeys, and it rules, right? Like, yeah. and they're like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "No, no, no! You gotta! It's great, and it's it's about Ape Moses, and it's shot in that that kind of epic style, and it's fantastic." I um, this actually is another total tangent, but I do mm-hmm. sort of wonder if the centrality of Batman in our current mm-hmm. popular culture is because when you make a Batman movie, it yeah. necessarily has a tactility. Um, Zack Snyder is kind of the one guy who like elevated Batman to the level of a god and that's not a, a value judgment on Zack Snyder in any way because I know what happens if I make one of those mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, you know most Batman movies are like this is a guy who fights crime hand to hand in the streets he solves crimes and to do that you have to have some degree of this person is really on set they're really wearing this suit they're really yeah. doing this work like it's the one superhero you kind of can't CGI. And I think that's why Batman is, is this character we keep returning to where in, in the recent Matt Reeves film, I was like, you're not telling me any of the backstory. Cause you know, that Batman is like fucking Jesus now. And like, I know the whole story because I live in the world and I've heard yeah. about it. So like, you don't have to tell me his parents died. You don't have to tell me all this stuff yeah. cause I already know it. And I don't know what that says about our culture, but like, uh, good for Batman. I don't good know. Good for Batman. Good <laughs> for Batman. Uh, I did. I, I will admit that at one point, watching this a few days ago, the last time I, I was again, it was very similar to the time when I heard the rocks being thrown in the grave. But there was a shot, I believe, of was of young Yuri Zhivago from the back and him walking to the uh, uh, to the grave site, and I just went, Ah, oh, Zack Snyder ripped that off and. Batman versus Superman. Oh no. And I was like, oh God. I I was like, my brain is cursed. Why do I? But you know, it's yeah. hey, if it works, you know. This movie and Lawrence are so ripped yeah. off by so many. And that's cool. Yeah. That's good. Good for the cut from um our Alec Guinness, you know, mm-hmm. saying a thing or whatever to just the enormity of 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 those mountains yeah. behind this tiny insignificant funeral in the foreground and yet the funeral is like the end of this kid's life i think is Mm -hmm. that shot is such an encapsulation of this movie and it's why so many people miss what made david lean work and why his style of filmmaking has kind of gone out of 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 fashion both because it's again prohibitively expensive but also because Mm -hmm. david lean was always interested in here's this huge landscape here's these people having this life-changing moment that is happening way down in the bottom 
you know, and, and they're overwhelmed by it. Weirdly, now I'm just thinking about people who are kind of using David Lean techniques to interesting yeah. effect. Weirdly, Sam Esmail did this on Mr. Robot of all things, where like that was a show that constantly would frame the characters in the lower portion of the screen, almost to distraction, almost to mm -hmm. a place where you could like make fun of it. But it was very much the same thing. We live in a world where corporate machinations have ground us down into tiny, insignificant ants. And yet we continue to have our lives and we continue to do things and we continue to try to connect with each other. Um, so yeah, Dr. Zhivago and then watch all of Mr. Robot. That's that's the <laughs> filmography for you. Yeah, to get the, the true David Lean effect. I did, uh, just watching this movie the last time, it is so, because there is just like so much plot to this thing. Mm -hmm. And it is, and, and it, starting with the framing device, it is sort of confounding when you first watch it. You're like, wait, what is this about? Okay, okay, so this is the kid. Wait, is the kid Javago? The kid Javago. Wait, is he a doctor? How is he? And then, you know, keeps cutting forward in time that you can Dr. start. Dr. Javago was Doogie Hauser. Is that what he thought? Dr. Javago. <laughs> <laughs> No, go on, go on. That would be Dr. Zhivago Babies. I would watch it. But like the fact that he very, I think very, you know, he sets up that this is a small human story against the huge background of history, the weight of politics and the weight of the Russian revolution and all that. And then in my opinion, you don't really, I don't think it quite hits you until like halfway through the movie where you realize, oh, this is what this is about. Oh, this is what that shot was about. Basically, once you get to, I mean, the crystallizing moment for me is always, um, God, everyone in this movie has like five names, but Pasha, when he's then revealed to be, a, now he's a, he's a Soviet villain. And he has the line about, you know, the private life is dead in Russia. And you yes. go, oh, 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 oh. So for everything has been about, and now it all comes together. And it's one of those things that makes those earlier scenes retroactively better and more vital and it's it's good filmmaking it's good writing i think carson i think that you're hitting on a thing that just like i don't know it's say what you will about um you know amazon owns mgm now you know uh, all, all studio that. filmmaking Ooh. is just becoming acquired ip mm -hmm. and so like it's making so, so much of what gets released especially on like this wide of a scale to be things that like have to spoon feed. That's maybe a little rude, but like, you get what I'm saying. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like we don't get that. I feel like we don't get that moment like as much anymore of that thing of like, I have been watching this movie for 90 minutes and I'm kind of confused as to where this is going. And then you have a scene and just everything just boom, 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 clicks into place for you, like thematically. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, it is, it is such an awesome experience to have that while watching this movie while also kind of like keeping in mind that thing that Emily you were talking about of just like but also the cool thing about it too is just like so much of it is you know when you look at this movie of a guy goes to find like the love child of this person and then we go back to his story and then it's about you know some of like the cases he's working in you know in Tsarist Russia and it's just like but at the same time all of these little moments are so insignificant mm -hmm. to the whole thing. And it's just like, you know, you can kind of like, I feel like if you didn't speak a lick of English and you just kind of watched Dr. Zhivago and you didn't get any of those plot intricacies and you can just kind of see like, okay, they're fighting and now things are bad and now they're kissing. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like you, in a, in a weird way, you still almost get 
maybe 80% of what the movie is going for without mm-hmm. even like super hearing a line of dialogue because it is so much about that just like epic scale and how long these like stories like so many of our life stories are I mean all of our life stories but like are written over the course of decades and like how these little things that like are the most important thing in your world right now like 20 years from now are going to just kind of be like a footnote but also like but also integral like stepping stones to get to where to where we're going yeah and I think that's great no, I uh, like I said earlier, I think this movie, you know, is not anti-communist so much as it is anti the government getting yes. in the way of you having sexy times with your, yeah. your lady yes. friend. Yes. And like there is a thing of I think that this movie captures beautifully, which is I've totally forgotten. It was very smart. And you should just know <laughs> that it was a smart point of view that I have been wanting to work in for a while. And now I've forgotten it. Like, no, literally I've been wanting to work in it for like an hour. Now. Oh, but um, I'll think I'll, I'll oh, oh, here we go. Here we go. Hey, here hey, we go. hey there it we is. There. Hey, <laughs> thinking, oh, yeah. about, um, thinking about people's, um, leave that all in. That's how my brain works all the time now because I'm an old lady and I'm a mom. I'm not actually a mom, but um, you know what I mean. Vibe. I'm well, turning man, into a mom. Turning into yeah. a mom. Yeah, everyone mm-hmm. I see is my child. Hi, hi, kids. Make good choices today. <laughs> um, um, I uh, am thinking, I've been thinking about the scope of my life because I'm probably halfway through it, you know, um, a, a little under halfway through it, if I'm lucky. And like, that's, uh, this is another total tangent, but I want to outlive Stephen Sondheim. I, 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 I love Stephen Sondheim, but he was like 91. And I'm like, I'm going to get to 92. <laughs> like that's, that's my new goal because I think he, uh, he must be taken down. I don't know. He's too powerful. He's even in too death. Powerful. <laughs> even in death. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the scope of my life and how it has crossed decades and how all this stuff has changed and how now when I look at photos of my childhood, they look very old in a way they didn't to me for most of my life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember that after Trump was elected and a lot of people were freaking out about the state of the world, understandably so, um, especially, you know, um, people who are not straight cis white guys. Um, I, uh, read a lot of books about the, uh, reconstruction after the civil war and the early Soviet union, um, because those were both two situations in which there was this sort of utopian ideal, this sort of potential to create, recreate the world in a new way to wipe out a lot of stuff that um, can't, uh, a lot of stuff that needs to sort of be changed in the world and in society. And they ultimately fell apart both times, wildly different situations. They fell apart in the face of people just getting in the way. You get a corrupt person (laughs) in the right position or the wrong position. You get the wrong person in in the wrong job and they just gum up the works. And they're like, hey, give me a payoff give me a thing. Or, you know, I'm going to appoint my friend who cares, you know, if we're trying to break down um, this systemic system of racism that's existed in the U.S. for all these years. Or, you know, get my friend in there who cares if like that's going to cut against our ideals of sharing property equally Mm -hmm. across uh, populations. The problem with 
The problem with politics, whatever politics you have, is always that it runs into the face of that people are weird, unpredictable creatures who are ultimately self-serving. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the message of Dr. Zhivago. If you are watching this movie as somebody who wants to advance the communist project in some way, this movie is is anti-propaganda to you because... It's a movie about, you know, the very natural thing that happens where people are like, I don't want a bunch of people moving into my house. That sounds mm-hmm. awful. Um, I And you know what? I'm leftist. I don't want a bunch of people moving into my house. That sounds awful. I think I would rather they we build a different house for them. And yeah. They can live there. Good for them. Um, but like you look at this from an anti-communist propaganda lens and it's very much like, well, you know, it's not saying, it's not pointing out the worst excesses of Soviet Russia. You know, it's just saying this guy and his, and his, his girlfriend kind of had a hard time of it once the eyes of the government were turned on them. And like, but isn't that just life? Isn't that just the fact that we're all trying, we all have our things that are more important than the political moment we're living in. And we sort of faint toward everything's political. Everything is important. Mm-hmm. Everything is, you know, I, especially in this era when Twitter and Facebook and whatever, just deliver all the things that are yeah. happening to us all the time. I'm constantly aware of the ways in which I live in a world that is falling apart on a daily basis yeah. and yeah. like a world that is heating up a world where people's civil rights are being trampled in basically every country, a world in which like as a trans woman, this is kind of one of the best countries for me to be living in. And yet this country is routinely assaulting my civil rights. Mm-hmm. Like I look at all of that and I'm still like, but I love my wife and I, you know, I have my personal projects. I'm trying to get this novel published. I have my personal things that are very important to me. And if there was a sudden regime change in the country, even for the better, even if we built a utopian society, I would be very mad if it got in the way of me publishing my novel. (laughs) (laughs) It's this this balance that that I think we don't think about enough. This balance of Mm -hmm. like, for a lot of people who are very invested in political movements, it is because the political movement is the thing that there is the, is the novel they're trying to publish. It mm-hmm. is installing the regime is the thing that needs to happen to make their lives better. And even if it makes everybody's life better, there's still that chaos and that changeover of like, I have the thing I wanted to do and I have the ice palace I wanted to just quietly live in with my girlfriend and her daughter by a different guy who turned out to be kind of an asshole. And like, that's that's that is what I think this movie gets. And when this movie is at its best, those are the scenes where you're like, oh, yes, Lara and Zhivago were in love and they had this brilliant, beautiful, epic love story. But also the world. <laughs> and we all the older I get, the more I realize that life is just grappling with that. Yeah. And I think. I think anyone who is a political idealist loses sight of that at their own peril. Um, I do. I, I, this is, I do think a lot about these right-wing movements to sort of tamp down on, on queer identities in the U S and they just fucking lose sight of the fact that people are going to do what they want to some degree and you can make it illegal, but if it's not infringing on, you know, if it's not literally like murdering someone or assaulting them or, you know, taking their stuff. Yeah. It's a lot harder to um, say, no, you're, you cannot legislate 
who people are. You just mm-hmm. can't. And every regime tries to, and every regime fails to, and every regime falls apart in the face of that. And anyway, that's how Dr. Zhivago is about the don't say gay bill. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, wow, Emily, that was, yeah, it was beautiful. phenomenal. Yeah. That was amazing. And like three different times you said something and I'm like, oh, like I could take this there. And then you got there and I'm like, cool, cool, cool. So that was wonderful. Yeah. Also, um, if you guys are out there and you're listening, publish Emily's book. Um, yeah. Weirdly I'm enough, just, our last I, guest was a was a was a book editor, so maybe we can maybe by the end of the season we can have a publishing house going. <laughs> I'm uh, I, I'm sending it up for querying next week. I don't know when this podcast is going out, so um, by that point uh, it may have been May, sold. I think. Okay, May 31st. Yeah. Fingers just, crossed. Yeah. Let's just assume by that point I've posted the screenshot from Publishers Weekly that says uh, Emily Vanderwerf or Emily. Oh my God, I said my old name, Emily St. <laughs> James uh, book. Uh, I'm not saying the title because. For some reason, I've decided that's bad luck. Emily St. Mm. James' novel sold to, you know, fucking Simon & Schuster in a nice deal. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of money. Very successful. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many dollars. No. Yeah. Um, but I mean, no. I mean, I think that, that is 100% right on the money. And uh, and it is that thing of, like, I remember you brought up, like, the beginning of the Trump administration versus now. And I remember, like, that election happened. It was my after my senior year at mm-hmm. college and Jesus I was having fucking Christ. dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't ask, don't ask Carson his mm. age because yeah, he, no. he makes me, he, he, he ages me horrifically. Um, but Carson remember- is your, uh, 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 do you have to go, do you have to go do some like algebra homework after we're done here? Is that like, well, I, you know, I'm actually really good at math. So they put me in pre-calculus <laughs> to get ready for college. Uh, but I just remember I was having dinner with like two of my former professors, like two weeks after the election. Mm-hmm. And I just remember we were sitting there and we were doing that all borderline the SNL, like white people, <laughs> uh, post-election skit. Yeah. But I just remember having that conversation of just like, I know that like, as a quote unquote nation or whatever, like the civilization that is the civilization that is on this land that was violently stolen years ago. But like this Mm -hmm. civilization, this government, like the civil war happened and that was super bad, but like we survived it. And then the great Mm. depression happened and that was super bad and we survived. And then world war II happened and that, and like, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, but so many individual people did not. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I do not know what to do with that. Like me, Mm in like ads, whatever, 23, 24. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I am supposed to do with that information. And like, my brain just cannot calculate what I do now. And then like, even, and, you know, flash forward five, six years post that election. And it's like, you know, I see news stories of like, you know, Trump at whatever rally or whatever says like extremely dumb thing. And I'm just like, I was like, wow, like that was three years ago. And I remember like violently fearing for like my own personal well-being. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and now even just two years later, I'm like, doesn't that seem kind of quaint? Yeah. Like, doesn't it almost seem like, you know, like there was that Twitter outrage circle of just, like, he would say dumb thing. We'd all go about like, oh my God, but this is so fascist and like horrible. And it was, mm-hmm. and it is, but it's like, but now even two years later, like Biden's had well, like over a year in office and like, 
I see no protections for LGBT people. You know, I see no protections for myself and my partner that have been like codified into law. And just that thing of like, well, damn, like, I guess that's just kind of how these things happen. Like they come and they go and they're horrible. And like, even the hindsight doesn't make them any less bad, Mm -hmm. but like at the same time, it's just like, but like, you know, through that time, I did a lot of, a lot of good stuff happened in my life. A lot of bad stuff happened in my life too, but like, you know, and it's just that thing of just like, even five years later, I'm like, I still don't know what to do with all of this. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, um, a lot of the things that I, I think about in regards to this is like, yeah, you know, your life just continues in the face of all of this. There was this dumb tweet yesterday. Let's get yes, into it. Let's, let's say a dumb tweet. This is this uh, is typically this is typically my corner of yeah, the this podcast. Is, yeah. So I got in this argument on Twitter, and anyway, it's, it's one of my, my show. So now this is where I get to be right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Matt, um, Matt, Matt, Matt Tybee, um, the journalist, kind of all around, um, has some. I don't know. He's very concerned about so-called cancel culture. Um, and we aren't going to get into cancel culture, but he was like, say what you will about, you know, Republicans trying to um, crack down on critical race theory on discussions of, of LGBTQ plus people in schools. At least they're making laws. They're not just saying they're not just, you know, doing uh, random things with no accountability like Twitter, Google, Facebook, whatever. And like people push back. And Matt Tybee was like, it's a lot easier to repeal a law than to like find a way to get back on Twitter. <laughs> no, it's not. It's no, so man. easy. It's so easy to get mm. back on Twitter. You look at um a few years back, um Ireland um decriminalized abortion rights. Yeah. Uh which had been criminalized there for so long. And it was this like huge celebration. But they had to like put it to a vote of the entire country to get to do that. And like we are probably on the verge of losing um mm-hmm. access to um legal abortion in the United States. And it probably will become a state, a state thing where like I living in California could get an abortion if I had a uterus, but like, um, you know, like, like that will probably be the case, but like you, we forget, we forget because you live in the middle of the historical moment, the degrees to which these changes multiply and amplify so much of what we're living through right now in terms of Mm -hmm. economic insecurity, in terms of economic instability is because of decisions people made before I was born. Mm -hmm. Like, and and those decisions like, you know, went downhill and they were making decisions in the face of decisions people had made before they were born. Actually not Ronald Reagan. He was ancient. He lived forever. (laughs) But like when you eat the blood of innocence. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's just like, I don't want to sit here and say politics don't matter because they clearly yeah. do matter. A lot yeah. of people lose their lives. A lot of people have their lives materially impacted. A lot of people are deeply, deeply hurt by what happens in this country. For a lot of people, whatever you want to say about the United States, they're already living in a fascist version of the United mm-hmm. States. And like there's, uh, you know, it's a giant country. So there are many different, you know, versions of it. And I, I live in a United States that's pretty good, but I'm also a white lady who mostly passes for cis and like i'm i'm living in the face of this world that is terrifying and scary but the world is always terrifying and scary um there's a a line of of dialogue that is currently in the upcoming season of arden that might not continue to be in it's like 
the world is always ending, but the world is always beginning. And like, I don't mean that as a hopeful thing either. The world yeah. ending is scary. Yeah. The world beginning is hopeful. Yeah. And just to put this in the interpersonal terms of Dr. Zhivago, <laughs> him, you know, like his wife leaves him. Yeah. And he has a chance to join her, but that's also an opportunity for him to pursue this relationship he's always wanted to pursue. And like the movie presents that without malice. A lot of movies would judge Yuri Shabako for doing that. Mm -hmm. This movie's like, you know what? He's been through a lot. Wouldn't you want to kiss Julie Christie? And I'm like, yes, I would. Yeah. That would be nice. I would. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. No. And I, mean, I think, I think you're 100% on, and it is that thing where it's like, I mean, you know, uh, the three of us live in different places, but we are all in or from Ohio and like, you know, but all from the city. And so like, I drive the 15 minutes out to my parents' house, even like, we don't even have to go state by state. Like I drive 15 minutes out to where my parents live. And I'm just like, Oh, this is like literally a different universe. Yes. Like, mm -hmm. like I live like downtown, downtown mm -hmm. and like they live just outside the suburbs and like if you get on the if you get on the highway there's a straight shot right to where they live and i'm like it took me 15 minutes to get here and like literally a different world yeah yeah literally a different yeah. world um yeah i live in i live in la and like it's such a it's such a bubble here like in a way that i say the word bubble and it's like become kind of this like yeah it's, bad thing but mm -hmm. like i just mean it in the sense of like you know, I I don't necessarily have, even in the event of like the United States collapsing into a theocratic dystopia, which mm -hmm. I think is entirely possible, which is a fun mm -hmm. thing to say. I do feel like I'd have like some degree of protection. When Trump was in office, I was not obsessed with him. And people here were not obsessed with him in the way a lot of my friends in New York and DC were, because we were so far away from him. Yeah. We were like, you know, we were complaining about our own governor. We were complaining about our own wildfires. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. And like, I, I uh, unless you see the entire and complete end of humans as a species, which I think is possible, we could do that. We could pull it off. It it's could happen. Even, we have some methods of Yo, doing so. We could knock is, that out in a weekend if yeah, we the, really the, wanted to. The over under on that is not mm -hmm. as optimistic as I, as I would hope it, yeah. it And be. yet, the other thing about us as a species is we're really fucking mm -hmm. good at staying alive. That so, like, real. you know, climate change, uh, if it, if it knocks out, you know, 75% of the population, that still leaves several billion people who are going to mm -hmm. adapt, who are going to figure out ways to live in the world and like, and like live in this world that's gone out of control. And they're going to continue to have these stories of like, I really like this boy, but he won't <laughs> look at me. Right. And that's, that is, I'm talking myself into liking Dr. Zhivago more than I did, which was yeah. already considerable because it's just like, Stalin's great purge mm -hmm. plays out off screen. What you see is, is Yuri Zhivago having a heart attack <sighs> running after Laura. I'm like, I'm like now feeling very <laughs> emotional about this. It's so fucking cheesy. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was kind of rejecting it, but now as we're talking about it, I'm like, Oh, he had a heart attack trying to run after Laura and she never saw him and she lost her daughter. And also <sighs> We haven't talked about how Rod Steiger plays a total asshole. He's oh, so he good sucks. at it. He's oh, so yes. good. <laughs> well, and that's the thing too. Like, that is a great point because it, he comes up mm -hmm. after like 
two hours of not being in the yeah. studio. And you're like, mm-hmm. whoa, 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 wait, you this were guy? the villain. Yes. Like, for an hour. Villain. And like he, he is. And everything he does in that first hour is horrifying. He and, rapes yeah. Laura. Exactly. He rapes Laura. Yes. And then and the movie, go ahead. Oh, well, and then I'm just gonna say, and then like 10 years later, 15 years later, he shows back up and is like, hey, I, uh, boy, howdy. I know the last time our paths crossed was a pretty rocky, but, and it's just yeah. like, and it is that thing of just like, you are a monster. Like we want yeah. nothing to do with you. And also kind of like, can you get us out of this situation? Like, can you help? Yeah. Like, are you going to help us right now? And it's like, yeah. I was thinking about how that guy gets even worse when you consider that there's a scene in which he's talking to the hopeful young idealist who will go on to be part of the, you know, the, the revolution that changes the country. And he's like, you're too idealistic. You know, you gotta, you gotta believe in what's real kid. You know, I think that I'm going to be the one on top. And then it cut to 10 years later and he's like, so I've joined the revolution. I am uh, at the top of the new government. I actually have a very nice cushy position. I'm like, how the hell did at what point you like asshole that you just underserved yourself to the point where you're like no i think i'm i think i'm a communist now i've decided like the, yeah the ruling yeah. class will just endlessly yeah. propagate itself yes, like exactly. the, the the thing about revolution is it changes a lot of mm-hmm. people's lives for the worse and the people who have it good mostly continue Still to have it good. good yeah a few of the like figureheads will mm-hmm. die and that will mm-hmm. be sad for them this are yeah, the czar. He's, yeah. He was an enemy of the state, Kate. though. I drew a picture that shows. <laughs> How that. Is the enemy of the state. Um, no, I, I. What I, you know, I think that if this movie were made today, there would be a lot of think pieces about how well mm. this guy is a rapist and he should yeah. not be. But I think this movie is 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 very interested in the idea that he is a total piece of shit who's mm-hmm. the piece of shit they need in that moment. Yep. It is very interesting the idea that nobody is one thing. And I think that art at its best introduces these complicated human people. And this is just ultimately a movie about three dudes who are into the same girl. Like yep. that's kind of what it's about. <laughs> yep. And like they are into her in very different ways. And one of them is into her in terrible ways. And and like she marries one of them and, and has an affair with the other and blah, blah, blah. And like, it is very interested in the fact that people are never one thing. People yeah. also tend to follow pretty consistent motives and those motives will guide them in different directions depending on the current moment in history. And it's just also, you know, people are constantly, all well, this is playing out in the sweep of whatever. I think that um, uh, uh, Twitter, especially, makes us forget the fact that everything is big <laughs> because it's so small. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, I can understand now and I know who to be mad at. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we can all agree that the real communist utopia is the Julie Christie's we fell in love with along the way. Hey, um, hey, God who, damn it. God okay, damn it, this is an important this is an important question. Who yeah. out of the Dr. Zhivago cast would have the best Twitter account? Like which character from Dr. Well, Zhivago? Zhivago's a poet. So that yes. does put him a little ahead. Hmm. But I think that po like I know I, I guess um um Patricia Lockwood. Um, mm-hmm. was, uh, was was a poet who was, did very well on Twitter. But it does seem to me like poetry is not like what Twitter's yeah. looking for. No. Pasha would Pasha would be big for a while and then he would get canceled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. yes. He'd he go and come to town be, yeah. and he'd say something weird and then, yeah, come for him. Oh, no. The answer is Katya. 
Katya would have a fucking great Twitter account. It would just be like, yeah. And here's a picture of the czar. And she would have like, she would be the one who like managed that thing of like seriousness combined mm-hmm. with like dumb jokes. And like, she would just nail it. Katya, oh, yeah. if you're out there, please. Actually, I feel like Alec Guinness's character would also, you know, have a, it would be very dry, but it would be like, I feel like he would be a the drill. I was about to say he'd be the, because he's a secret policeman. So he'd be the drill of it. You wouldn't know that it's him. Yes. I think, I think, uh, I think uh, Komarovsky has a really good chance to become like an almost Alex Jones, Alex Jones level. Just like, here is this horrible, terrible man who says the worst, most egregious Mm -hmm. things on the internet. And he has checks notes, 3.5 million followers. Mm -hmm. Um, He'd be on Joe Rogan. Like once a month. Once a month. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think I don't know. Uh, Does that show come out weekly? Probably. He's on every episode. I don't know. I've never obviously listened to it. I do feel like Katya has an account called Fake Nicholas II, which is just her tweeting (laughs) as as the Tsar and being like, by the way, I'm still dead. (laughs) Italian Nicholas II. He's Uh, got like a mustache on his mustache. It would be be the opposite of Liza Minnelli outlives. It's just like (laughs) everything else in the world that has outlived the Tsar. Um, (laughs) um, But yeah, I mean... Emily, I know we're coming up a little bit on your time, but I oh, is there- here's a here's another narrative thread that we're going to close. The people I'm meeting with mm-hmm. actually pushed us an hour, so like I have all the time in the world. Well, oh, wow. to be to be clear, I have another hour. I don't actually have all the time in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can go a little bit over. <laughs> okay. Well, well, very fair. I mean, I I think that like I don't know. Um, on this show, we really do kind of, we do love to focus very big picture. I feel like the way Carson's mm. in my brain works does go very big picture, very thematic, very mm-hmm. to relate this to today. So like, I feel like you've really, really, really hit on some like really excellent points um, of this film. And I just like, do you have anything else on your mind? I mean, I know that this is a three plus hour. Yeah. Epic, so it's like, we could go frame by frame uh, mm-hmm. and have way more to talk about, but like, do you have any kind of like further thoughts on this? Cause I feel like, yeah. I think just on the level of craft, this is mm-hmm. probably one yes. of the great movies ever made. And yeah. I think yes. that's why it's so, um, I think uh, Lawrence of Arabia is one, is one of my favorite movies. I think uh, David Lee never quite topped it, um, but I like all of his movies. I, I I've liked everything I've seen. Even Ryan's daughter is a mess and kind of a bad movie, but it's fun to watch because it's so enormous. Um, but like, I, I think I just look at this movie and this is a bunch of crafts people at their peak making a movie that looks, but sumptuous at every level Mm -hmm. that looks like you could disappear into it. And I think that that carries you through even some of the sections that maybe don't quite work. There's stuff in this movie where there, there are stretches of this movie where I'm kind of like, okay, sure. You know, when the story gets too far away from Laura, Mm -hmm. I feel like the movie suffers a bit and not even the Laura Yuri connection, just like she has her own thread that we're following. Mm -hmm. And she's in many ways, the protagonist of the first half of the movie. And then we kind of lose sight of her. And Zhivago is, Zhivago is an interesting symbol. I don't know how he works as a character. He is a, a, he's kind of an empty center to this movie, but in a way that works in the favor of the movie, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about um, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Power of the Dog, which is a movie that uses his weaknesses as mm-hmm. an actor and yeah. turns them into strengths. And I feel like Zhivago does that with, with, as well with Omar Sharif, where like if yeah. Omar Sharif didn't have like really great material to sink his teeth into, he could kind of get lost in the middle of the movie, um, which I think is true of a lot of actors. It's not a dig at Omar Sharif, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this movie understands, but he's he's hot enough. And that's enough. And um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, I was reading some of the people David Lean almost cast or wanted to cast. And I, like one of them was like, no, you should cast Omar Sharif. He's really hot. And David Lean was like, you know, he is. You know, he is. <laughs> well, and I think too, that just like, you know, it is sort of that, because this film or the the novel rather that it's based off of is semi-autobiographical, except for um, uh, Pasternak was not a poet or was, was not a, was not a doctor he was just the poet so I think that like the kind of having that kind of like you say that empty center of just like you know the thing about doctors in wartime is like and I know that they're in Russia so they're not taking the Hippocratic oath necessarily but you know that that ethos of being a doctor of you know I don't care I don't care who's hurt or for what reason if there's a hurt person if there's a sick person like it is my responsibility to help them so it's like it does allow him to get to get pulled through the story in a way that were he just a poet kind of seeing the world it would feel as very very almost um very very forced or almost trite and it is that thing of just like well he's a doctor and you know who has some hurt people the red army right now so he's Mm -hmm. gotta go and help them you have that first scene with adult omar sharif where he's like finishing up medical school he's doing research or whatever and he's kind of looking at the slides and examining and he's having that conversation with his teacher about you know it's well you you're interested in life well you're gonna be a general practitioner though blah 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 blah. and you kind of think like this is gonna be about like how he's a doctor and like his aspirations as a doctor for the rest of the movie. And then you do get to a point, Caroline, to your point, you realize, oh no, he's a doctor solely because that's the only way it makes sense that many different armies didn't literally have him killed at various points in this movie. Cause like yeah. otherwise, yeah, if it was like, oh, you're, well, we need a doctor. All right, well, come on, you know, rather than just I'll take him out back and get rid of him. Like, I don't care, you know? And to a certain degree, um, um, doctors are, threatening to mm. any political regime because yeah. the treating treating anyone it usually includes enemies of the state mm-hmm. you know um i, I again not, not to keep bringing everything back to the battle for trans civil rights in the united states at this moment in time do it do but it. um you know a lot of what people a lot of what people on the, the right are threatened by is the fact that doctors are concluding that the best way to do no harm to trans children is to uh, affirm treat their genders them. and treat them. Mm-hmm. And that's scary to, so we're like, well, we're going to legislate the doctors. And mm-hmm. that's horrifying now that I say those words. It's the same thing as like, you know, how often um, a, a abortion providers are attacked. Yeah. It is this idea that a doctor is the most threatening thing because a doctor is saying the individual human life has merit in and mm-hmm. of itself and we have to preserve it at all costs whatever we can do to preserve it is really a nice thing to hear when it's you who needs your life preserved. But when it's somebody you perceive as a malfeasant or an enemy of the state or whatever, Mm -hmm. that is a very threatening thing to hear. And I think that is kind of why this movie's politics get away with being as apolitical as they are because a doctor to some degree Mm -hmm. is an apolitical job, you know, whoever's hurt 
you have to save them. Anyway, Michael Caine <laughs> claims that he read for Zhivago and took part in the, the screen test with Christy, but he watched the screen test and was like, you should cast Omar Sharif. I don't think that's true. That sounds like a yeah. thing Michael Caine made up, but yeah. I want it to be true. So it is true. We made it true. <sighs> I'm just oh, imagining you heard Cockney Dr. Zhivago. And it's it's a very different energy. It's yeah. he's a lot. I mean, look, he'd kind of work well with Alec Guinness, though. I think that those scenes would really pop off. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a there's a there's a swagger to mm-hmm. uh, Michael Caine at, at that at that era that I don't think um, <laughs> I, I don't think um, Omar Sharif is particularly interested in. He is interested in playing hot and very sad and beaten <laughs> down by the world that is uh, one i i've been thinking about kind of when the movie lost focus for me and it's that long section where Zhivago is living with his family in this yeah. cottage and like cool um i i that sequence is very beautiful there's a lot of good stuff in it and i'm realizing it's because tanya is kind of the one character this movie doesn't care about she's yeah. a huge vital important character but her role is she's the wife and like this is a movie that plays in very broad strokes. It does not have very well-developed characters no. outside of um, Komarovsky, who is mm-hmm. this really fascinating figure who you're sort of glued to every time he's on screen. But it's yeah. very much like Pasha's an idealist. Now he's part of whatever. Mm-hmm. Now he's dead because he made mm-hmm. a bunch of people mad. Like it plays in those broad strokes. I think it works because it is taking place over the sweep of a life. And the sweep of a life, you know, you have that kind of um, broad strokes arc. But yeah, it it really loses Tanya in the midst of that because she is a character who doesn't have that kind of arc. She's kind of mm-hmm. just like, you know what? I love my husband and I love my kid and we're just going to, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's uh, uh, that is, I think, why that section suffers is I feel like if I were going to remake this movie, which, they which did. obviously they I should. They did. Uh, they did make a miniseries of it, which is I think I, I think I watched. It's not that good. Sounds um, heretical. But uh, Kira Knightley, Kira Knightley is like a good choice for Laura. I'll just say that she's definitely, she's, uh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, her yeah. work in any. Like, if Kira Knightley is in a period piece, I'm like, well, it's a six out of ten, right? Like, it's at least a six out of ten. Like, it only think, goes up from there. I think she was like also 16 when they made it, which is weird. Yeah, because it was 02, so the year before Pirates and mm-hmm. and Pirates, the year of Bend at like 18 or 19. Yeah, good yeah, couple so, years for Kira Knightley. Yeah, I, I didn't know. Twenty years have been a good couple of years. For well, years. true. So I I didn't I didn't know that there had been a remake until literally I was watching the other day, and my roommate was like, "Was this the the old one?" And I go, "The old one." And she goes, "They made one in two thousand two. I was like, "What?" And I was like, "That's no good." But it did make me think. I'm like, and it's kind of to the point of what's been discussed a lot here is that like I'm like, if you're gonna remake this, don't one don't just like don't touch it, but also like two just reimagine it totally like take the ideas of it and take it out of the russian revolution and like like man i'd love to see like boots riley do a really weird kind of vaguely sci-fi-ish near future version of dr zhivago that's about all the same stuff like that would be kind of weird and cool god karen knightley was just working constantly from the time she was <laughs> six she <sighs> doesn't make enough movies now but now seeing how like much she worked as a kid good for her good for her just like actually also the kind of movies she's really good in don't really get made anymore kira knightley star and free guy too um (laughs) (laughs) joe wright directed free guy too 
Channing Tatum, Keira Knightley shared the top billing. That would be pretty dope. Yes. Um, I kept thinking about um, watching this movie. Uh, I kept thinking about um, War and Peace, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, my probably my favorite novel ever written. And if you are writing a, a story about war happening in Russia, you kind of have to grapple with the fact that like Tolstoy already got there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And wrote possibly the greatest book ever written. And, you know, that is another, that is a thing that we are so drawn to as a theme is like massive, sweeping things that happen. And yet we continue to just have our lives in the face of that. There was this thing, um, I think we published at Vox. It was some site published it. I don't know if it was actually Vox. That was like early in the Trump administration that was like, you know, most people in author authoritarian regimes have pretty okay lives. And people were like, no, that's wrong. But it's most people just keep having life. Yeah. You know, right. most people just until the state is suddenly like, no, stop having that life. You don't really notice or care. Yeah. Because our brains are not evolved enough to encompass all of existence. They're involved enough to be like, this is my husband. This is my daughter. Mm -hmm. This is the people who live across the street. This is my best friend. Like that is, that is what your brain is capable yeah. of handling. And we've built a civilization that nominally supports 8 billion people on top of that. So Which, hey, good, good for us. us. Snap, snaps for humanity. We did it. Right. And, and it was the piece like a year or two ago, like during the whole, like, lead up to the 2020 election that was mm -hmm. like oh like uh the, is there going to be an insurrection like is there going to be a coup like is the is the united states government actually going to get overthrown mm -hmm. there's a piece that like i think also might have been at vox but i could be wrong about that but it was just somebody was like oh yeah like i lived through like the complete economic and political like collapse of a nation and like the united states is doing that exact thing right now and everyone's yeah. like no it's not what are you talking about it's like no, like it is like, mm -hmm. that's just like objectively what's happening. Yep. Like that society is crumbling. That government is actually like way past the point of being like considered like collapsed and subverted, but like, yeah, you know, most yeah. people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you click you the clock out on. button at the end of the day on your computer. And then, uh, in two weeks time, the numbers on your cell phone go up and you can buy some more movie tickets. And like, yeah. That's what you're going to do this week. It's like, huh, okay, I guess you're I, right. I think of the John Mulaney when he was, he did like SNL the week before uh, the 2020 election. And he had the bit that everyone got so fucking mad at him for, which was the, yeah, we're having an old man contest. And then he has the line about, ah, look, whoever wins, nothing will fundamentally change, you know? And he mm -hmm. goes on that. And it's a, a good comedy routine. And there is a, as we've been speaking, a tremendous amount of truth to it. And I did find the, just the visceral level of anger that people had towards that to be really kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think um, fundamentally, you know, I'm glad that mm -hmm. Joe Biden won the 2020 election, yeah. I guess is like a thing. We can all say. say this. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know, like, because right now the, the platform of the democratic party, mm -hmm. which is if you are on the left in the U S kind of the thing you have to support because mm -hmm. of our fucked up system, yeah. like fundamentally their, their uh, platform is not actually changing things. It's just reducing the amount of harm that happens. Mm -hmm. And as frustrated as I get with that, when you read about countries that resisted the slide into authoritarianism, it's because they just preserved their institutions. Mm -hmm. And it literally is just like, we're going to keep things 
the way they kind of are. And we're going to like compromise away a bunch of shit and it's going to be awful, but we're going to prevent ourselves from collapsing into, you know, a dictatorship. And like, it is really annoying to me. (laughs) Annoying is the wrong word. (laughs) It is really like, it is, it is enervating to me that there is this situation where I feel like the, the party that is nominally on my side is not worried enough about my civil rights. And yet I take a step back and I'm like, but also like the big concern everyone has is keeping the country from collapsing into more of an authoritarian state than it already is. Mm -hmm. But also I don't want my marriage with my wife to be invalidated. I don't want any future children we may or may not have to be like stripped away from us in some sort of whatever. But also I want to, you know, keep taking my hormones. (laughs) It's nice. And I like it. Um, big, but also big my hormones, but also my hormones are built atop an economic system that I find unsustainable. Mm-hmm. But if it goes away, I might not have my hormones, and then I won't be able to take them. And who will publish my novel? <laughs> no, yeah, and I mean, like, I think I think you're so right. Like, I had not many, but a few people come after me on Twitter a few weeks ago because I tweeted I was like, "Wow, the best thing that's happened so far for the inevitable liberal like." Um, you know, uh, you know, reputation, um, turnaround for Trump, like when, like what we're seeing with George Bush right now, like Mm. the, the reputation redemption for Trump, like the best thing that's happened for it is just that Joe Biden kind of isn't doing anything different. He's just not continuing. And people were like, most people were like, ha yep, that's pretty right. But a few people like came for me and it is that thing of just like, you're so right. It's just like the thing that's happening right now is not that like we are seeing the Democrats coming in and just like making any sort of sweeps, but like, you know, it's that thing where it's like, even in my brain, like as far left as I am, I'm kind of like, so nothing has gotten better. Like we haven't really done any there hasn't been any national policy change to like stop the, you know, the, the, you know, the harm of queer youth in like these states, there hasn't been any massive policy change. We just haven't nationally gone forward with those things. So it is just that thing of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And like, I think, you know, um, the, one of the big fights of the, early Joe Biden administration has been whether Democrats will do away with the filibuster, which would allow them to get a lot more done. Yeah. And yet the fear is if we do away with the filibuster, then what will the other side do? And like the, Mm -hmm. I, I think the filibuster should be done away with to be clear, but I do think the maximalist terror position has some validness to it in that you do kind of the, the thing that preserves the country is these things that I hate yeah. and that are used to suppress and re- oppress people. And like, and yet you take them away and then like some of the, the, whatever comes off the car and mm. you're just careening. We're, I mean, we're careening down a hill toward a cliff. Let's just face it. But like, you know, right now we can kind of tap on the brakes sometimes. And like, that's, um, I just, I, I don't know because, um, for as upset and as mad as I get at the current people in power, I realized the time for them to change things was kind of like in 1975. And what do you do with that? Time moves one direction and you can only change things. 
extremely slowly. And how do we know that like whatever's happening right now won't touch off? Like I look at things like um, unionization efforts Mm -hmm. and grassroots movements. And I'm like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential here to build a lasting movement in the United States that I will feel more comfortable with. How do I know that the people of, of, you know, however, a hundred years from now, who are making a podcast about the movie that was made of my novel and talking Mm -hmm. about this time (laughs) in American history won't be like, yep. And then things kind of really started to turn around and it took a while and it was very scary. And like that will just, but also how do I know they won't be like, and then some brave patriots on January 6th, 2021, (laughs) almost won. And then they didn't, but also then eventually the move, like fundamentally we can't know that. And that's what's scary. And we just have to keep focused on the fact that Julie Christie's and Omar Sharif are pretty and they should kiss each other. Yeah. yeah. And little and little Katya comes up with a little drawing that just says, let's go, Brandon. And we go, oh, should he go? Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, well, uh, I think that's I, Corey, what, what what's our time stamp? <laughs> uh, uh, like, 132. Oh, that's nowhere near. Wow. That's that's no. great. That's awesome. Doing great. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I uh Emily, this is this is the fucking thing I do, which is just the like fucking galaxy brain meme. And I'm always just like, you know what? What if this is actually about the existence mm-hmm. of carbon as a particle? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I love that. I love that because um our our tangents t- do tend to go back to, but why aren't the pretty people kissing? So I think <laughs> you know what- so I, I love that you're taking it there as well. Um but yeah, I mean, any any closing thoughts on uh, Dr. Shivago or any more tangents we want to go on? No, I think um, I think we have gone on a lot of weird tangents about the state of society and the state of the world. But like mm-hmm. this movie prompts that. This exactly. movie is very much about how everything sucks except some things don't, and yeah. like yeah, and that's regard that's true regardless of when or where you live. And the things you find that don't suck, you kind of just have to hang on to and hope for the best. So I hope everyone here has a good, happy life. And I hope that in a hundred years, they do make a a podcast episode about the movie that was made of my novel. And people are like, how have you not seen this? It's great. It'll be like three robots. So it'll be three, three robots in the metaverse. Yeah, you but we can rest assured that um, that at least ninety minutes of the ten thousand hours of podcasts that were fed to those robots, at least ninety minutes of it will be this podcast, right? Here. Yes. Yes. Um, well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it has been um, it has been a great conversation, and I am so glad that you thought of Doctor Shivago because I think yeah. that it is really a great film to be, to have, um, to create sort of some of these discussions. So I know I said up top, you know, um, you can find your work at Vox and as well as the podcast you co-created Arden, but is there, um, where, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Where can they find now your I'm, work? Now I'm trying to remember the other movies where I was kind of like, maybe we could do this. Maybe we could do this. Like mm-hmm. one of it, one of the things that people don't know about me is I was, I mean, people do know this. I was, I was raised very fundamentalist Christian. So like, populist movies of the 80s are a big blank spot for me um mm. like i i hadn't seen ghostbusters until i went to college wow. and then i was like this is what people are so crazy about it's just a pretty pretty good movie um, <laughs> um so yeah if I, if I ever come back we'll have to talk about 
what's what's a populist 80s movie i still have? we'll have to talk about lethal weapon um, oh <laughs> i have to talk about the cops yeah um, hell yeah <laughs> Um, you can find me on the intranets at, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, I'm old. You can find me at, uh, I'm at twitter.com slash emilyvdw. That's kind of the easiest way to keep track of all the things I do, even though I don't tweet as much as I used to because I've decided that Twitter is ultimately not a great place to be. Yeah, it's because that um, sounds like a very good decision. Mm-hmm. Carson uh, Carson left us a year ago. I did. I Recently celebrated the anniversary. It was, it was a nice day. Um, I actually, my Facebook has done this. There's this known bug on Facebook. That's like, it will say you're all caught up. And like Mm. they installed it to sort of de-addict people. And I don't use Facebook that much, but I logged in the other day and it was like, you're all caught up. And all the posts were from like late March. And I was like, do I actually, do I actually want to report this to get it fixed? Or do I just want to live in a world in which is perpetually March 30th, 2022. (laughs) And you know what? Maybe that's what I want. We'll find out. Um, uh you can find me on twitter at twitter.com plus emily bdw my writing does appear at vox um i also have a newsletter which is that emily my podcast is arden you can find it wherever podcasts are sold um and i have a a, a book i published in 2018 uh monsters of the week the complete critical companion to the x-files which has as we say in the biz, earned out, which means that if you buy it, I'll get like twenty five cents. So go hey. do that. And I want some. I want some quarters. I can Gotta spend do some on video. Yeah, can spend on the Pac Man machine at the Pizza Hut. Oh, wonderful! Well, Emily, uh, you said if you ever come back on the show again, um, just know you are welcome anytime. This has been Absolutely. a delight and a joy. So, um, hope we 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 really hope to see you next season. I'll drop you a line. Um, yeah when we're when we're planning that in a couple months but um, absolutely we can talk about how lethal weapon is about the fact that um no one understands like how chimpanzee society works yeah (laughs) yes and um and the cool thing too is if you do come back in the future you're more than welcome to um yell at me and carson for not having seen a thing um so oh yeah okay great cool that you love we'll do that um so thank you so 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 much for joining us um please um go listen to Arden, uh, check out Emily's, um, newsletter and her book and her work at Vox. And, um, yeah, mostly you, you hear where you find our stuff, um, each week. So, um, go check out Emily that having been said, Corey, do you want to tell the fine people at home where they can find us on the internet? Absolutely. If you like what you hear, please be sure to like us and subscribe wherever you stream the podcast. Leaving a review will really help out the visibility of the show. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash hhynspod. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and TikTok at hhynspod. And a special thank you to our patrons. If you'd like a shout out on the show and bonus content, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash hhynspod. We have multiple levels, all with their own perks, ranging from $1 to $25 a month. As I said, if you're interested in hearing more, please visit patreon.com slash hhynspod. Wonderful. Um, and so that about wraps it up for Dr. Zhivago. Corey, I think I think we reconfigured the schedule a little bit. And is next month the first or is next week the first week of June? It sure is. Oh. Wonderful. So Carson, mm. um, 
Do you want to know what you're watching next week? I, you know, I already know, but let's, let's, let's do it. What <laughs> am true. I? You do have, <laughs> I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, I do have access to the spreadsheet. Well, using your master's degree in acting, please pretend like you are um, shocked <laughs> when I tell you that next week we will, oh, wait, this is actually great. I'm actually wearing my, uh, oh, you wearing the shirt? Lana Wachowski hey, show perfect. right now. Um, <laughs> we will be watching um, the Wachowski's debut film, bound fantastic oh, yeah. very exciting very exciting can't oh, believe yeah. you haven't seen it but i'm very glad you uh, haven't because i get to watch it and talk mm-hmm. about it again can i force y'all to watch nutcracker in the four realms next time <laughs> I, watch? I have also never seen that movie i don't it's I, not good look, look i would love Emily, that if you come back on the show and you really want to do nutcracker in the four realms we will hold your spot there's this there's this ridiculous thing i do where i am the regular christmas guest on many different podcasts mm-hmm. and um i guess we should do that well let's do a christmas movie i'll, I'll come that. back in december <laughs> and we'll do nutcracker in the four realms <laughs> maybe like we'll literally get any christmas movie if yeah. we get lucky maybe they will have added like they'll do a new one. It'll be like Nutcracker and the whatever, like the Secret yeah. Palace, and then we can talk about that too. The Secret what's Palace. A, what's a what's a Christmas movie one of y'all hasn't seen? <sighs> That's a good question. You know, I I have not I have never seen Scrooged. Okay, I've also never Bit seen of an Scrooge. Um, oh wait, no, Caroline, we've talked about this before. You know, a Christmas movie I've never seen. Muppets oh, Christmas a Christmas story. story. No, I've seen a Christmas story. Oh. I watched that movie. I am from Ohio. Okay. I have seen that. Well, no, that. I know. Well, that, that oh, was thing. I thought that it's because you're from Cleveland. Yeah. And you no, that's seen it. that's a mutual friend that's of ours. Friend. That's, 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 yeah. that's our friend. That's 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 our that's our friend. That's Jack David. Yeah. Yes. No, 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 no. Muppets Christmas Carol. <gasps> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good one. I thought we've yeah. talked about this before. I'm sure we have, but we that's just heresy have. to my ears. Yeah, I know. It's heresy to my ears. Well, um, we're another movie here. another movie about how two people's problems in the face of overwhelming society it means they should just kiss and it's bob and you know and emily cratchit <laughs> <laughs> yes yes well um i think the rest i think the four of us are probably gonna go actually start discussing what movies we're gonna do for christmas so uh emily thank you so 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 much again for joining us and um we will see you all next week when we talk bound 